0: promises to Abraham, doesn't it? To Abraham, it was promised that through him, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And our uh, gospel mandate, as Jesus gives it in the book of, or at the end of the book of Matthew, and certainly we see it again in Acts, is based on that very truth, that it's not only for one nation, it's for all the nations of the earth. So we're talking about Abraham, we're continuing our study. In Romans chapter 4, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 4 tonight, we are in the all important fourth chapter of the book of Romans. I say all important because it is the place where the Apostle Paul begins to argue very, very carefully for the truth of the gospel against those who would try to argue that our right standing before God, whether Jew or Gentile, would have something to do with our own works, our own effort. Is the gospel or the good news to sinners something that says you can work hard and do your very best or that you must be a member of a particular group or that you must try hard to obey God's law and hope that you will be good enough when you stand before him on the day of judgment? Or is the gospel and good news something far, far different something that says your hope of heaven and of salvation is to be found not in you at all, but in another, that no amount of good works and law obedience will ever make you right with God, that your only hope is found in the obedience of another and of the sheer mercy of God, who does not count your sins against you, because he's already satisfied his full wrath upon the one who knew no sin. Well, I think you know the answer, which is the true gospel. It's what Paul said in Romans 1, that he is not ashamed of the gospel of God, of the righteousness of God unto salvation. Now, Paul has been dealing, we know, already in Romans with these questions since verse 21 of chapter 3, when he first defined the good news of the gospel found in Jesus Christ. But in chapter 4, and this is why it's all important, He brings to his argument, especially for the Jew who continues to want something to boast in. Paul says, was Abraham justified by works? Was Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, justified by works? If so, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. This entire chapter deals with Father Abraham The most important person in human history for the Jew, to whom Paul we know is primarily speaking in this chapter, but also to the Gentile, as we'll see this morning. How do the blessings of the gospel come to us? Do they come to us by our works and efforts or apart from our works? Paul's already again answered this question in many different ways. using various questions and answering them, even bringing in our last study, the Psalm of David, Psalm 32, as a corroborating witness. But now in the verses before us tonight, nine through 12, a very short and really straightforward section, he completely, completely destroys any hope that Father Abraham was justified by works or that he received the blessings of justification for something that He did, even if it was good, like circumcision, for instance. And so this is our focus tonight on these verses 9 through 12. Please stand as we hear God's Word read. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 9 through verse 12, this is God's Holy Word. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? As far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you. We are thankful once again for your word, for your spirit, who is our teacher, who takes that word and by your power takes that word, presses it to our hearts and lives. And because of this, we are changed according to your will and made more and more like our savior, Jesus Christ. May we truly be found to be those who walk in his steps. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Dr. Guy Waters is a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He wrote a little booklet, very helpful, called The Christian's Pocket Guide to Being Made Right with God. And in it, he tells a very brief story about the late John Gerstner. Some of you know John Gerstner. I know at least one person who knows him well, sitting up front. But Dr. Gerstner was a bold uh, preacher of the Word of God, faithful in all that he did. Uh, He tells this story, he says, Dr. Gerstner was once giving a talk on the Bible's teaching on justification. A reporter for the local newspaper was present and wrote a story about that talk. Much to Dr. Gerstner's surprise, the story reported that the subject of his talk had been just a vacation. Well, he didn't talk about vacations, of course. This humorous story tells us, reminds us, that uh, the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit. But I think it's also true, especially in our day and in the broad evangelical church that there may be many many among those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ who would not be able to define what the term justification means according to the Bible. It's a sad state. I think it speaks to what Pastor Fisher was speaking about this morning when he talks about the importance of ministers of the gospel continuing to command and teach these things or the doctrines of our faith In that little booklet, Dr. Waters goes on to say, justification is an act, it's a verdict. What is God declaring about the justified person? He is declaring two things. First, all of our sins are pardoned. Even though we are guilty of sin, God forgives us. And second, we are righteous persons now through the merit and righteousness of Jesus Christ counted to us. Those are the doctrines, actually. This, perhaps, is the most central doctrine of our faith that Paul would have been instructing Timothy to continue to command and to teach, to be faithful, to preach in season and out of season. In Paul's mind, there is no doubt that it is the central truth of our salvation and the main point of how it is that God saves sinners. And because of that, it is worth defending against those who would undermine it who would teach otherwise and say that this salvation somehow can be attributed to our own works, our own efforts. And so he stays with Abraham because he is the chief example. Prove it with Abraham, you've proved your case, especially to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And he asks in these verses and answers some very, very important questions so that he might make it explicit and clear in the way that God truly justifies sinners like you and like me. And so we're going to look at these verses under three headings. First, an important question that he asks. It's a very important question. You can see it in verse 9. It actually continues in verse 10 as well. Uh, Paul asks this question, is this blessing then? only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And then building on that, verse 10, how then was it counted to him? You can see how important this question is. He brings up circumcision again. This is an important subject in the life of every Jew. It is what Abraham was commanded to do, as we read just a few minutes ago, from Genesis chapter 17. It is called literally the covenant that God made with Abraham and with his descendants after him. He was commanded to take this sign and apply it not only to himself, but also to all of his male descendants after him. And at the end of that passage, you heard anyone who refused would become a violator, a breaker of God's covenant. So it was synonymous with his covenant, the covenant of grace made with Abraham that God was working out in those times. They would be those who uh, disobeyed and violated his covenant. Now, again, Paul's already addressed the subject of circumcision. It's very important in the book of Romans. He's addressed it at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. And he says essentially that circumcision has its place. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing as God commanded it when he commanded it. But it was never something that the Jews were ever to trust in as a means by which God would save them. It would not be through circumcision that God would save them. It is a value though, if you obey the law, Paul argues, remember those uh, chapter or those verses in chapter two, it it is a value as long as you obey the law. But Paul said, if you disobey the law, you make your circumcision to be uncircumcision. You make yourself like a Gentile out of covenant with God. It was never to be merely, Paul says, an outward and physical sign. And it was never something in which the circumcised should boast while at the same time disobeying God's law. And so here Paul uses circumcision as he does elsewhere as a sort of marker to differentiate between the Jew and the Gentile, and that's literally what it was. The Jew bore in his flesh the mark of God's covenant in his very flesh. The Gentiles didn't do that unless they converted or came into Judaism. And so circumcision was a defining, a differentiating mark. If you notice Paul's question in verse 9, he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the Jew? Is it not also for the uncircumcised? Now, what is this blessing to which Paul is referring in verse 9? Well, just look back just a couple of verses to verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing... Of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In the immediate context, the blessing is the blessing of justification. As Dr. Water said, that twofold blessing of justification. And you see it in the verses, don't you? In verse 5, just preceding this, he says, The one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith counted as righteousness. His faith counted his righteousness. Now by faith, receiving a righteousness outside of him, not his own, that is counted to him. That's the first aspect, if you want to say the positive aspect. But the second is also positive, but it refers to sin. So often it is viewed as a negative that God forgives, verse 7, forgives our lawless deeds. He covers our sins and he does not count our sins against us. So both of these aspects, this twofold picture of our justification is what Paul has in mind here this blessing. Now is that blessing that twofold justification is that blessing only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say he says that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now that's a reference to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is where the Lord clearly says in verse six of that chapter, that because Abraham believed God, he credited it to him, counted it to him, considered because of that Abraham to now be righteous, to possess a righteousness that comes from God. And so he asks, when did all of this happen? When did it happen for Abraham? When did he receive this blessing? Was it before or was it after his circumcision? This is a huge question. His answer will, again, I think, settle the case completely. It will be the answer that will certainly rule out any possibility that Abraham would have been justified by his own obedience, by his own righteous works and deeds. But instead, he was justified merely by the grace of God ultimately in Christ. And so you have a very important question, and I think you can see and we can see together how important this is in Paul's argument. He's trying to establish this truth that Abraham was justified apart from the works of the law. And he brings in circumcision because it's such a central idea in the mind of the Jewish person. Circumcision was again defined as the very covenant of God. And so it was so important in their minds. Notice his answer then, a very important critical answer is the second point in verse 11. Was it before, here's the question again, was it before at the end of verse 10 or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. Now Paul makes it very clear the timing of this and there's a reason why he makes it clear. Calvin says in his commentary, if Abraham's righteousness was the remission of sins which remember that's one aspect of our justification our sins are not counted against us they're covered they're they're forgiven which he safely or safely takes us takes as granted and if abraham attained this before circumcision it then follows that remission of sins forgiveness of sins is not given For preceding merits, God doesn't forgive sins because we do the right things. He doesn't forgive sins because of our works. You see that the argument rests on the order of causes and effects for the cause is always before its effect. And righteousness was possessed by Abraham before he had circumcision, the sign of God's covenant and the very covenant itself. Now, the language that Paul uses here after he makes this clear statement in verse 10, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. The language he goes on to speak here is of great importance for us this evening. He received, he writes, the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Why was this command given to Abraham when it was given? Why, as most believe, it was at least 14 years after the incidence of Genesis 15 that Genesis 17 takes place? 14, some argue, up to 29 or 30 years after, depending on how you count uh, the years in Genesis and, and the text as it unfolds but at least 14 years later the sign of circumcision was given now we know what the word sign means we've talked about it a lot here at uh, at grace paul uses this word in the word in the way in which we usually speak of it it's a straightforward term that means something that pointed to something else much as we've said before many times as you're going along a road you see signs that tell you how far your destination is The sign is pointing you to your destination. It's not the thing itself. So signs are never the thing itself when we talk about the signs that God has given to us in the scriptures. It's something that God uses to point us to something else. Circumcision was a sign to Abraham to remember the greater reality to which that sign pointed of what God had promised and what Abraham had believed. It's literally saying to Abraham, Abraham, remember, that's why the covenant is actually re-expressed in chapter 17, given to him again as a reminder. He says, Abraham, by this sign of circumcision, I want you to remember back to that event, that time when you were actually asleep and I passed through the animal pieces cut in two and the blood representing what would happen to the one who violated what would happen to me, God says, if this covenant was violated. And he says to Abraham, I want you to see this sign, circumcision, and I want you to think of that because it's there where you believed my promise and by believing it was counted to you as righteousness. This sign pointed to Abraham and for Abraham to a greater reality now given to him, confirmed to him, 14 years later later, after he had believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His attention was to be on that great promise and his simple faith in believing what God had promised. But notice his language again. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness. Now this word is also very important. It's added here to assure Abraham that all of this is true. It confirms that the reality it points to is indeed true. It is true, it is done. The blessing which God promised now belongs to Abraham. And so, by receiving and taking on himself and then giving to his children after him, his male children, this sign, it was also a seal to him. It was to strengthen his assurance that the promises of God are true. To seal something, according to one writer, means to authenticate something. He goes on to show that this same idea is used elsewhere. In the scriptures, this word, for instance, in John chapter six, verse 27, Jesus says these words, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures unto eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, that is on Jesus, God the father has set his seal. Same word, same idea. All commentators agree that what Jesus is referring to there is his own baptism when he was publicly sealed by the Holy Spirit as it descended upon him like a dove at his baptism to equip him to send him forth into his earthly ministry to do all that the Father had given him to do. The word is also used about us who are believers in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, in a very similar way with respect to God's seal upon us. Speaking of the Holy Spirit's work, Paul writes, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So this sealing by the Holy Spirit in our faith and believing in him, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We were affirmed to possess the very things that God had promised to us that we have believed and received by faith. What God means here, one writer says, is that in circumcision, God was giving to him a sign to authenticate or seal the imputation of righteousness to him when he believed many years beforehand. So you see what God is doing. And you see why it's so important in the argument. The normal Jew of Paul's day would have said, Abraham was saved ultimately because of his obedience to what God commanded, including circumcision, including offering his son Isaac in that test that God would bring in chapter 22. That this is the way in which Abraham earned and secured for himself the righteousness which the scriptures say that he possessed. If that's the case, Paul says, that none of it makes sense because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, 14 years plus before, while we might say he was as a Gentile, uncircumcised. And so you can see in just a moment, he's going to make application of this and tell us why it is that God chose Abraham, justified Abraham prior to circumcision, apart, separate from circumcision, and then gave to Abraham as a sign and a seal of what God had already accomplished, what Abraham had believed, so that Abraham would be reminded and assured that what God promised was true. It's very, very important what's happening here and Paul knows the impact it has on the argument that he's making in these verses. And certainly the readers would understand it as well. That leads me to the third point, which is, again, this remarkable purpose. Why did God do it this way? The purpose was though, so that Abraham, and you read it in the text, the purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that's the Gentile. That's, remember Paul's argument. That's what he means. He means the Gentile. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. It's not just for the Jew. Go back to the question in verse 9. It, it's not only for the circumcised. It's also for the uncircumcised. Because Abraham was uncircumcised when he was justified before God. He doesn't stop there. And... To make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So that he might be the father of all who believe. That he might be your father and my father of all who believe, Jew or Gentile alike. What a powerful argument. What a, an argument that I think ends all discussion with respect to Abraham's own justification that it was clearly apart from his works, unrelated to this uh, sacrament, if you will, or this ordinance of, uh, of circumcision as used in the Old Testament as a sign and seal of God's covenant. That was later. Abraham was justified. Before all of that, because it was merely by faith, by believing, because it is impossible to please God apart from faith and Abraham believed and it was accounted to him to righteousness. Now, as you think about the bigger picture of how the Jew in Abraham's day, or I should say Paul's day as he's writing this, how the Jew would have thought about these things. There are many places in his own letters, as well as in the accounts that we have in the gospels regarding the Jewish mindset with respect to Abraham and how they claimed to be children of Abraham, merely by ethnic descent. One of the most famous, and I think one of the most important is in John chapter eight, This teaching that Abraham is the father of the faithful, or of the faith-filled, if you will, was the focus of really one of our Savior's most important interactions with the religious leaders of his day. At the end of this account in John 8, you remember, he he is uh, threatened by them. They take up stones to kill him because they knew exactly what he was saying at the end when he said, before Abraham was, I am That's what he said. That's why they took up stones. But before all of that, he has this amazing interaction with them as he speaks to them ultimately about Abraham. You see, the assumption in his day was that all Jews descended from Abraham were God's people chosen for the blessing because they were physically descended from Abraham according to the flesh. This would have been Paul's view prior to his conversion. He understood the same. And it's what Paul is dealing with, the same idea and mentality in Romans 4, verse 1 and following, when he writes, Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh. In John 8, this is the interaction. I'm not going to read it all. It's it's rather lengthy, but I want to give you the highlights. He's talking to the Jews who had believed him. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, well, we are the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How then can you tell us you will become free? And then he goes into this teaching with regard to sin and being a slave of sin. And he says this, I know in verse 37 that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father, small f. Now, things are getting a little tense here because I think they begin to understand where he's going. And they challenge Jesus and say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Later, you are of your father, small f, the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. That is a critically important time in the life of our savior. They will take up stones to kill him based on what he says later, but this is bad enough if you will, if you will, but you see the connection to what Paul is dealing with in Romans 4. We are children of Abraham. We're his descendants. We have right to the blessing. God has given us the blessing because we're the children of Abraham. But Paul says, no, it has nothing to do, nothing to do at all with your works or being literally the descendants of Father Abraham. It is the one who believes what God has promised that God will then count righteousness to them. And notice what he says, especially in verse 12, to those who would claim to be children of Abraham, the Jewish man, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised outwardly, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. And his argument here is, if you really were children of Abraham, Jesus says, you would believe my words because my words are God's words. For, Behor, for Abraham was, I am. The same exact argument Paul makes here. It's an astounding argument. It's a great example, I think, of the overall way in which Paul, through Romans, argues very carefully, very precisely in order to defend the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. No confusion here. Abraham was not justified by works, but simply by faith, by believing. Three things to note as we close. It's a brief passage, but three points I think are very important. You know, I I love this study of Romans personally, and and we get more out of it as pastors. I know Pastor Fisher is thoroughly enjoying his study of the pastoral epistles. He's only in First Timothy. He's got two more to go. Well, we, we as pastors, we love working through this, and I particularly love seeing the apostle Paul's careful argumentation throughout this book of Romans. Some people may not like it as much as I do, but I thoroughly enjoy learning how Paul argues so so faithfully to defend the truth once for all delivered unto the saints. But you know, we can get lost in the argumentation. We can kind of get lost in his skills uh, as, as, as one who is, is so steeped in, his, in God's word and, and makes such clear and persuasive arguments that we can really miss the point of what he's trying to do in these verses. And that is simply to call the Roman believers, the Roman people to whom he's writing, and all people everywhere to simply believe the gospel, to simply believe. This is a call it's not merely an argument it is a call to simply believe what God has promised that's what he's talking about Abraham Abraham believed God that's the language of Genesis 15:6 Abraham simply believed God it means to take him at his word it means to understand the blessings that God freely gives to those who will but simply believe To simply believe and to know that God will justify you, grant to you a righteousness that is not your own, a perfect record of obedience so that you will stand perfectly before the Father. Not only as if you have never committed any sins because those sins he forgives, he covers, and he does not count against you but possessing a righteousness given to you as a gift from him, a righteousness earned through Jesus Christ. It's the blessing of David in Psalm 32. What a precious psalm it is. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Have you tonight as you sit here, No matter your age, you need to understand the simplicity of Paul's overall argument, and that is a call to simple faith in believing God. That the one who believes God, that God alone is able to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from every unrighteousness, and to give us that righteousness of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That you are then saved that you are free from the wrath to come, no longer having any fear, but only knowing the blessing of God that Abraham knew and that all who are his true children know by simply believing the gospel. That's what excites Paul in all of this. That's why the passion of his argument is so clear in his writing. He is not ashamed of that gospel for it is the righteousness of God unto salvation for all who simply believe and as we've said even that faith as the gospel call goes forward even that faith is the gift of his spirit enabling you to believe and to live accordingly so i want to remind you and to call you again to simply believe the gospel secondly I want you to note here, and this is really important, and there are other sermons that could be done. Both pastors say that all the time. We could do sermons about this. There are, but notice the language of the sacraments here. This is where we get the language. When the writers of our confession use this language, it's right from places like this. It's right from places like this, a sign and a seal ultimately of God's covenant of grace. Our confession says this about the sacraments. You'll hear it. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. The assurance, right? The blessing of assurance that it's done, it's yours, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and to solemnly to engage them in the service of God in Christ according to his word. And then later this, the sacraments of the Old Testament, which we would argue are circumcision and the Passover in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified or signed and exhibited were for substance the same as those of the new. We're talking about the same spiritual realities, whether we're talking about circumcision or baptism or Passover or the Lord's Supper, the same fundamental spiritual realities are what are set forth in both. And here's the point. Circumcision never saved anyone. Passover in itself never saved anyone. That's not what they were for. They never were given as a means to save anyone. Baptism doesn't save a single person, whether an infant baptized in obedience to the command of Christ, as Abraham was commanded to apply the seal and sign of the covenant of grace under the old covenant circumcision to his infant children, The same is true, it doesn't save anyone. It never was meant to save anyone. Or any adult who comes to profess faith, as Abraham did, believing God, accounting to him as righteousness, 14 years later, being circumcised. Nobody has trouble with the order there, but that circumcision didn't do anything to save him. He was already saved, if you will. He was already justified. And so sacraments don't save anyone. And yet we have to wrestle, and, and we would argue, as certainly as a Presbyterian church, we have to wrestle with this idea that God commanded Abraham to take the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, which he gave to him 14 years after he was justified, and to apply it to his children, his infant children, who could never express on their own at eight days old their own faith and obedience to Christ. So it's important to see the connection. It's worthy of other sermons. We've dealt with this in other ways, but it's uh, worth pointing out here the language and how that language is thoroughly biblical as we speak of our uh, confession and the language chosen there. The final point is this. Notice how Paul describes the Jew especially in verse 12 not one merely outwardly circumcised only in the flesh, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith of Father Abraham. It's much like as the Lord often does what Pastor Fisher said this morning, don't only command and teach these things, Timothy, but let your life show them. It's not merely in the teaching of these truths in the defending of these truths. It is in a life that displays these truths. And Abraham's life displayed it. You know whose life didn't? The Pharisees to whom Jesus was speaking in John chapter 8. And that's what he pointed out. You're trying to kill me, he says. Abraham would have never done that. Abraham saw my day. He rejoiced to see my day. And before Abraham was, I am. And so the encouragement is let your life and your practice Be consistent with your profession of faith. Isn't that always what the scriptures call us to? Isn't that what Paul himself in the coming chapters is going to say as well? You know, you're justified, he says. He's arguing in these chapters up till chapter five. But then he's going to say, listen, your life has to match your profession because that's the way God planned it. That's the way God works it. The one who is justified is also the one who is sanctified. And so as we end, I was debating, I'm not going to do it, so don't be afraid. I would love to do it. Love to sing a children's song with you. You know the children's song, right? You probably learned it in Sunday school, VBS. It has eight different stanzas. But I thought making you stand up, right hand in, left hand in, right foot in, left foot in, right? I'm not going to make you do that. But the truth of that hymn, hymn song, very familiar song, is so very true to end with father abraham had many sons many sons had father abraham i am one of them and so are you then let's just praise the lord isn't that great he has many sons i hope tonight as we end this study in these verses that you can say i am a son or a daughter of father abraham For no other reason than, like him, I believed the promises of God, and he credited it to me as righteousness. If that's true of you, then praise the Lord, not only today, but all the days of your life. Let us pray. Father, if it is true that we are truly children of Abraham, because like Abraham, we too have believed your promises, received the blessing, May we always rejoice. May we always give thanks to you for your mercies and kindness to us. Work powerfully among us, we pray, even this coming week, that we might live as children of Abraham, children of faith whose lives comport with our profession. And we would ask this not only for our sake, so that our testimony before this world would be faithful, but rather for your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.